Baruch Hashem, Yahuwah, bless the name of Yahuwah and Shabbat Shalom, Sabbath blessings. As we delve into, back into Ezekiel, this week I'm excited to get into a new scroll, scroll nine. This is Ezekiel's ninth vision as he goes to visit the elders by the river Chebar out of Babylon, outside of Babylon. This ninth scroll, this ninth vision can be found in the Masoretic text in Ezekiel chapter 32. One scroll here, scroll 9, chapter 32, and it's only 16 verses. Chapter 32, verses 1 through 16. It begins thus. And it came to be in the twelfth year, in the new month, on the twelfth of the new month, and on the first day of the new month, that the word of Yahuwah came to me, saying, Ezekiel has a vision. He delivers this prophetic vision and this prophetic message on the first day of the twelfth month in the twelfth year. And this is a lamentation for Pharaoh and Egypt. A lamentation for Pharaoh and Egypt. We're going to be looking at a few aspects today, switching between a couple of gears, looking at the historical record of what actually happened, a lamentation against Pharaoh and Egypt. And then we're going to be seeing and understanding that Egypt is a metaphor for the world and Pharaoh a metaphor for the ruling governing class and we're going to project that prophetically forward into our day not only on a global nationalistic issues but also address interpersonal relations and how we can better ourselves and our relationships with one another a lamentation for pharaoh and egypt but also we're looking at dealing with the consequences of pride. What happens when a person goes beyond that which was rightfully theirs? They should have stayed in their measure. But they decided that their measure wasn't suffice, that they wanted to go into somebody else's allotted measure, and the cause of their pride becomes their very downfall and destruction. Historically now, listen, historically Ezekiel recounts the pride and fall of Pharaoh, yes, and the pride and fall of Egypt. Metaphors for worldly, worldly life and metaphors for the political kings, rulers and leaders today, but also looking at our relationships interpersonally. We've already spent some time in these past weeks in the prior scrolls of Ezekiel examining the historical and prophetic aspects of Ezekiel's vision when he talks about Egypt, when he talks about Pharaoh. So today, 
as we look at these just 16 verses, I want to use Pharaoh as a metaphor, we're all familiar with, a metaphor for the pride of life, and of course, Egypt for an analogy of that worldly love of the flesh, the worldly carnal pursuit of life. We live in a global world divided right now, don't we? What a global world divided. Right now, you and I are awaiting to see whether the last obstacle of the fall of the cult of Pharaoh in Washington, D.C. is actually overcome or not. Look at verse 3. Because the net is being spread. Verse 3. The net is being spread over the pharaonic fish in our prophetic day. And we're seeing that in the news every single day as we await to see what happens with the nomination to the Supreme Court. Understand. Please, as we broadcast this message, understand we're witnessing the very cult of Pharaoh, the pharaonic fish, scrambling to obstruct long overdue justice. The elite are scrambling desperately to try and obstruct long overdue justice. Look at verse 4. They're going to be cast out into the open fields. That means what was hidden is going to become revealed in the public marketplaces through social media, through maybe Trump's Twitter account. (laughs) It seems pretty active. But also it's going to be broadcast out there on the airwaves. It's going to become, in the open fields, the public square, verse 4. The fowl of the heavens and the beasts of the world, even the conspirators' own supporters, when what is laid out in the public marketplace and the open field becomes apparent, when their crimes become public knowledge, even their very own supporters, these own liberals, that have been supporting all of these criminals, they will actually even devour them themselves. Verse 4. This is prophecy. Pharaoh, though, just as in the days historically, Pharaoh cannot be toppled. Pharaoh cannot be toppled unless Pharaoh can be judged. Pharaoh cannot be toppled unless Pharaoh can be judged. And Pharaoh can only be judged if righteousness prevails in the Supreme Court, allowing the cult of Pharaoh to come to the baker's end. And the baker's end is traitors will be hung. Traitors will be hung. Look at verse 6. The only way, the only way the water of the land flows with blood, verse 6, is if there's a death 
with the judgment. That means capital crimes of treason are exposed. Taking us back to verse 4, where we see in verse 3 and 4 that there is a net that, be, that is being spread right now in this nation. There is a net that is being spread. And these conspirators, these traitors, are about to be thrown out into the open field. And all their crimes are going to be exposed. And they are scrambling. They are scrambling to try and prevent Judge Kavanaugh from going into the Supreme Court because he will be the highest judge in the land able to judge Pharaoh and the pharaonic fish cult that has committed these crimes. That is the scramble that you and I are witnessing today every single day in the newspaper wrappers. Where do you think this came from? This is a last, last ditch attempt to deflect and to keep this cult going. Ezekiel came up against the same thing because Yahweh has come up against the same thing from generation to generation, generation. You and I, we get to live in this generation. We get to stand and proclaim the divine name in a world of pharaonic fish cult. We are privileged to be this generation. And if we can really understand the prophet's words today, you and I will move mightily and powerfully prophetically forward in our lives. But we have to interpersonally overcome that which is holding us back as well. Because your voice will not be heard if you choose to take the wrong path. Your voice, maybe that was vocal, will be silenced if you choose to associate with the wrong cult. And people will say, oh, well, Torah to the tribes is a cult. Yes, we are. No, we're just, let's be real. We are a cult for sure and for certain. We are of the cult of Yahuwah and we are proud of it. Join the priesthood, not a denomination. So let's just put that right out there because you know that's going to, people, oh, yes, 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 yes. No. yes, okay. Can we please, please continue on here? Because what we're dealing with is amazing today. And to layer this with scripture oh, just makes my blood just pump, just pump. Let me go back to this judge, Brett Kavanaugh, because he actually stated, quote, Congress should consider the prospect of implementing criminal investigations and prosecutions of the president. This guy said this. He's on record saying that. And of course, he's referring to the three former presidents, the cult of Pharaoh. The three former presidents, the cult of Pharaoh, it's a family, a cultish stronghold on this nation that needs to be broken. Will it be broken? Well, what does the prophet tell us today? You see, Kavanaugh, 
Judge Kavanaugh has actually got the dirt on the Clintons, the Bushes, and the Obamas. He knows where all the bodies are buried, and he has got the power to do something about it. And they are scrambling desperately, really desperate measures when they're doing the things that they're doing now to try and curtail, get this judge being able to act legally and bring down, like he says, Congress should consider the prospect of implementing criminal investigations and prosecutions of the president. He's talking about the past three presidents, of course. This is the last thing that the pharaonic cult want is for Judge Kavanaugh to have the highest judiciary power in the land. They know too well that they would in fact come to the baker's end. Traitors get hung. Kavanaugh's already accused the Clintons of committing, quote, committing perjury, disgracing the office of president, the legal system, using sustained propaganda and a propaganda campaign that would make Richard Nixon blush and turned the Secret Service upside down. Those are his words and not mine. Look at verse 7. The timing of all this, the timing of all this coincides with the heavens being shielded from public view and the stars becoming dark. We already have seen great things in the heavens in 2017. We have already seen just in the past couple of weeks even a deeper conspiracy opening up, a deeper and depraved conspiracy opening up within the Sun Observatory there in New Mexico. Was it New Mexico? I believe it was. Because there's a whole bunch of darkness and depravity that is now being shown to the light And in verses 9 through 12, this is causing the pharaonic cult great trouble. Verses 9 through 12. Because what we're seeing now is that maybe their plans aren't working out. Because for this country to truly be taken over by the globalists, and for you and I to have no hope, And for us to see no light, they have to accomplish three things. Now, two of those things they have already accomplished. And the third they thought they had accomplished until 2016. And then it became apparent that they failed on the third thing. The first thing that they have accomplished to be able to turn us over to the darkness with no hope. Is what? Yahweh gives us hope. Firstly, let's look at this conversely. Yahweh gives us hope because he says what? 
that the blessing is found in the next generation. So the converse of that, to take away our hope, is to do what? Kill the next generation. So they have to, number one, take over the education system. They took over the education system in the 1960s. It's actually depraved right now. That's why many of us choose to tutor and homeschool our children, because we understand that these government re-education camps have caused depravity in a whole generation. A whole generation of hopeless children. Because, number one, the globalists have to take over the education system. They've done that. Number two, they have got to take over the media. And number three, they thought they did this. They've done number one, and they've certainly done number two. Number three, they have to take over the courts. Number three, they have to take over the courts. And they thought they had done this, they had succeeded in this until the elections of 2016. And now we have seen problems for them. Mass firings, mass quittings under pressure of all of these cabinet members, these government members, as their crimes are being exposed. So now, as we see, the prophet's words are going to truly be powerful today. Not only on a global issue, politically, but also for us interpersonally. Remember what Judge Kavanaugh said. The Clintons, he accused them of committing perjury disgracing the office of president, listen, the legal system using a sustained propaganda campaign that would make Richard Nixon blush, and this is the one I want you to pay attention to, and turning the secret service upside down. What did Judge Kavanaugh say? That they did something that turned the secret service up side down. What was that? We witnessed the Clintons turning the Secret Service upside down, pay attention, at Waco, didn't we? You remember that? When they killed off three of their security detail that knew too much. Remember the four ATF agents that went up through the roof, went up onto the roof of Waco? You remember that three of those ATF agents climbed in through the window? And then the last ATF agent on there threw a grenade in and then killed them with his five, five, six rounds. The three agents that were killed were all personal bodyguards of the Clintons that knew too much that were taken out at Waco. This is what he's talking about. They turned the secret service upside down and all of this is going to come out. All of this, verse 12, look at verse 12. The pompous elite are, be, are about to be plundered of this if they can be judged. They're going to be plundered 
only if they can be judged and the only way they can be judged is if a righteous judge takes position and implements action. This is what you and I are witnessing. Pharaoh historically could never have been devoured unless righteous judgment was able to prevail. Will righteous judgment prevail in our day? I believe so. I believe so. But not only is this about our corrupt leaders, but how many of us have lamented for friends, for family, who've been seduced by the pride of life? I know I have. How many have succumbed to a worldly view, whether it relates to politics, family, fellowship, conduct, business, we see how people compromise. And I dare say most of us have witnessed that. Have we not? People that have succumbed to the worldly, pharaonic view of life. Look at verse 2. Son of man, take up lamentation. Lamentation for what? It's lamentation for the worldly life. And it's a lamentation for the worldly life's final judgment. How long can these people continue to behave this way? How long can our leaders continue to do this? This is a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, you were like a young lion among the nations. And you were like a serpent in the seas. And you burst forth in your rivers, and the trouble and the waters with your feet, and the muddy of their rivers were. I want to switch gears a little bit here, and also look at this interpersonally. I've got three points I want to make. I think this is very important. Number one, you were like a young lion among the nations. Historically, this is talking about Pharaoh's roar, his roar, his power once filled the nations. But Ezekiel says, now it's going to be silenced. Number two, you trouble the waters with your feet and you muddy their rivers. Well, what's this talking about? Well, during Egypt's incursions, historically, during their incursions into foreign lands, they would wreak absolute havoc among their victims. Number three, we see you burst forth in your rivers. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, of course, here is a sea serpent. He had no dominion outside his native marine habitat. Right? That's a limited dominion. That's a limited dominion. We all have a limited dominion. We've said this again and again the past weeks because it really resonates deep. Stay in your measure. I have to stay in my measure. I have a limited dominion. You have a limited dominion. Find out what that dominion is and stay in it. That's where the blessing is. When you start to get your eyes on somebody else's dominion, somebody else's measure, and you come out of your native habitat, you will dry up, you will wither away, and you will actually end up being cursed. 
I've seen it so many times. That's why we have to accept what we are. And then we have to pray that Yahweh would use us where we're at. I am what I am. I will never be what you want me to be. You are what you are. And you will never be what I want you to be. Stay in your measure and be what Yahweh wants you to be and have your eyes off of men. And when we don't look to men, we can do powerful things and we will actually stay the course and never sway. It's those that look to the accolades of men. They need the encouragement of men that will fail. I would never be able to continue in my measure if I had ever done that, believe you and me. And you can see that today as we now come onto this great, great timing of the full feasts when judgment comes on Yom Kippur, which is around the corner, which is corresponding to all of this great timing of this Judge Kavanaugh going and sitting in the Supreme Court all around Yom Kippur. Why do you think this is all happening now? Because this is a time of judgment. This is a time of judgment. You are seeing it being manifested even in this pharaonic nation that we now live in. Everybody is scrambling because they know this is a time of judgment. If this guy gets onto the Supreme Court, and he will, the baker's end is coming. The baker's end is coming. And of course, Bible students, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, Pharaoh, he was a young lion. He was a young lion. What does that mean? Well, you once, you once had a voice. You once roared and people were captivated and paid attention to that loud, clamoring roar. You had an ability to minister, maybe. Maybe you had an ability to speak into people's lives, but now you find yourself silenced where you once spoke to multitudes. Do you still share your faith? Do you still have the zeal that you once had? I think I'm more zealous now than I've ever been. Why? Because I've gone through trials and overcome as you have, right? Just makes you more zealous, doesn't it? If you press into Yahweh or you become a little discouraged, you become dry, you become despondent, and you start to move towards the pharaonic fish cult. The world, the love of life, the love of pleasure. And then you become seduced very slowly, but you do. You burst forth in your rivers, the text says. You were doing well when you stuck to your calling. You were doing great. Amazing things were happening. You were creating. You were building. When you stuck to what you were called to do, you were doing great things. And many, many people benefited from it. But the moment you set your sights on something or someone else and left your natural calling, your natural habitat, that was when you sealed your fate. Limited dominion. 
Even Pharaoh has limited dominion. That pharaonic fish had a limited dominion. And when that fish was in the Nile, that fish was strong. But the moment that fish came up out of the Nile, out of its limited dominion, it sealed its doom. Even Pharaoh. Don't get above your station. Don't get above your station. A serpent of the seas, the text says. What does that mean? A serpent of the seas. A sower of discord. So personally, do you study the word? Do I study the word just to be right? Or do you study the word to seek righteousness? Why are you in the Bible? To prove that you're right? So you can win an argument? Or to seek righteousness. Don't be right. Be righteous. Because if it's the former, all you'll find yourself doing is stirring up the word with your feet and muddying the streams of prophetic revelation for others and confusing people. Because you were going into the Bible to try and be right. And you ended up stirring up and muddying the waters for others who were seeking righteousness. Mark those who stir up arguments and contention and avoid them at all costs. Their fruit is apparent. It's apparent. Don't let others foul up the rivers of revelation from where you and I drink. This is one of the reasons why we as a ministry decided to disable all of the comment sections on YouTube. Why? It came at the request of many of you, our sincere subscribers, because you said that it muddied the waters, that you were going on our YouTube channel to seek inspiration and revelation. And then when there were people coming in there just to muddy the waters and place, make it a place of contention instead of a place of revelation, it became discouraging. And we're like, okay, we hear you. This is a place for inspiration and revelation, not contention. If you don't agree, go somewhere else. If you don't like it, leave. That's fine. And so we continue to hopefully inspire, build, and grow. Because this is what the serpent of the seas did not do. Stirred up the Nile River that even the mud from the bottom came up and it fouled the drinking for all those that were trying to drink. Don't do that. This is talking about personal things, isn't it? You burst forth in your rivers can also be translated as you gored among the rivers. You bur- Look at the text. You burst forth from your rivers, but it can also be translated as you gored like a bull. You gored among the rivers. Have you ever been gored by somebody? Shh. Have you? Have you ever been gored by some? Have you ever been stabbed in the back by somebody? Have you? Someone you trusted? Maybe somebody who swam in the same streams of understanding and revelation as you. 
And then all of a sudden, you got stabbed in the back. You got gored. Maybe somebody could say that about you. Maybe you did that. I know, I know most people could say that about others. Well, sure, when you were in the church, right? Well, what about when you're in your last job at work? Well, what about your present job? As soon as you started to talk about your faith and what you will and won't do, like maybe not work on the Sabbath, did you get stabbed in the back? Did you get gored? What about of family gatherings? When you wouldn't show up around December the 25th, did you get stabbed in the back? Did you get gored? All of this, all of this is supposed to help us to be introspective. Yahweh wants us to be introspective, to help us to become better people, because he wants us to what? Be sick and die? No, he wants us to get the healing. He wants us to get the healing in ourselves because once you and I get the healing in ourselves, then we become an aid to the people that are assigned to our future. But I can't be an aid to the people that are assigned to my future unless I get healing from my past. And to do that, I must be introspective. So I've had an introspective season that's now prepared me to minister to the people that were assigned to me in my future. That is supernatural. But I could never have got there unless I had had that time of introspection. And neither can you. This is an introspective time. We're in the days of awe before Yom Kippur. These are all lessons to be learned internally. That's all I'm saying. But in all of this, Yahweh wants us to learn to stick to our limited dominion. Because that's where the blessing is. Experience the blessing continuously when you stick to your limited dominion. Pharaoh, the great sea monster, he whipped the water up with his tail and he caused a huge outflow of water to flow into the Nile and overflow. It, it inundated the land near to the river and swamped it all. This, of course, alludes to Egypt's invasions of neighboring countries, historically. But to us, Yahweh was saying, stick to your calling. Stick to your calling of ministry and be careful not to invade others' space in your zeal. Even when you're witnessing, it's better to wait for people to invite you to share than you trying to invade their lives with your faith before they're ready. You've got to wait. Don't overflow the rivers of prophetic revelation into people's lives if they're not ready to receive it. Verse 3, Thus said the Master Yahuwah, and I shall spread my net over you with an assembly of many peoples, and they shall bring you up in my net, and I shall leave you on the land, and I shall hurl you out on the open fields. I mean, you imagined yourself as a young lion among the nations, but I'll treat you as you truly are. A serpent of the seas. That's what Yahweh was saying. You're a devil in disguise. You'll be hurled into the open fields of the world. You won't finish well. Why? 
because of pride, because you went outside of your limited dominion. You didn't stay in your measure. And I'll make all the birds of the heavens dwell on you. And with you I shall satisfy the beasts of all the earth. And I shall put your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your height. And the water and the land will flow with your blood unto the mountains, verse 6. And let streams be filled with you. The channels, the channels that once flowed with water, those channels that once flowed with revelation. Do you remember the time when you would just open up the Bible and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, would just pour and pour and pour into you? What happened to those times? Are you still experiencing those times? I know I still am. Why aren't you? Or are you? We must together encourage one another to continually experience that flow of revelation. Because if not, if there's a death of that flow, then that means that you've stepped outside of your measure. Verse 7, and when I extinguish you, I shall cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I shall cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give forth her light. You see, a person's downfall will sadden all of those that hear about it as they realize that they also may one day share their fate. Verse 8, all the bright lights of the heavens I shall make dark over you, and I shall bring darkness upon your land, declares Yahweh, declares Yahweh. All those heavenly bodies, all those heavenly bodies have deep, deep meaning within the scripture. And even those heavenly bodies interceded with Yahweh in Egypt's behalf, did they not, historically? And I shall trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction upon the nations into the lands which you have not known. This will be when the nations see your wounded, hurt, and crippled remnants. Once the news of your destruction and your confederacy's downfall. You see, there's a confederacy. There's a confederacy and that confederacy is going down. This is what we're seeing right now in our very nation. A confederacy that's about to be judged right around this season of Yom Kippur. But a side note here, a little side note about the heavenlies, because it's very important that we pay attention to the times and the Moedim, the seasons, as we come up to the feasts of tabernacles. Because on the bright lights of the heavens, look at verse 8, in the Bible there are two very prominent passages that point to the pyramids of Egypt. The Bible talks about the pyramids that are in Egypt in Isaiah chapter 19 verse 19 and Jeremiah chapter 32. Because Yahweh has placed wonders in Egypt to be a sign at the return of Yahusha to deliver those who will call upon his name. This altar... 
that Yahuwah talks about in the Bible. This altar is on the border, yet in the middle. It's on the border, yet in the middle. Do you know what the funny thing is? Giza, which is where the pyramids are, I've actually been there. Giza means border, and it's at the border of upper and lower Egypt. You see, the pyramid is a map of the end times events that you can mark with the heavenlies. And in fact, the Sphinx, the Sphinx is an equinoctial uh, marker. The Great Pyramid, of course, is a great sundial, the giant sundial that we can look at historically and it's even spoken about in the book of Acts that Moshe Rabbeinu was trained up in these understandings. It says that he was tutored this way. Last fall, 2017, we already witnessed the planetary alignment that is tied to the pyramids at Giza in relation to the horizon and the path of the sun. Already. Or the um, ecliptic that featured Venus as the morning star in conjunction with Regulus, the king star in Leo, signifying the king of Judah. You and I are that generation that looked to the heavenlies and got to see that. Jupiter, the Messiah and king planet, which of course you and I know signifies Yahusha as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, was aligned with the star Spica in Virgo. I mean, what a mind bomb that is. Truly. But back to the text. I mean, I just kind of went off on a tangent there, but you know, this is serious stuff. We're in this age that gets to witness not only what's happening in the political realm, but we get to see the Bible alive in our lives. We get to witness it in the heavenlies like, like no other generation before since the days of the prophets. This is amazing stuff. It truly is. Look at verse 10. Because up until now, Ezekiel has actually presented the parable as prophecy, and now he's going to explain it. Verse 10. And I shall make many peoples appalled at you, and their sovereigns shall be greatly afraid of you when I swing my sword before them. And they shall tremble continually, every man for his own life, in the day of your fall. This is a lamentation for Pharaoh and for Egypt. For thus says the Master Yahuwah, the sword of the sovereign of Babylon, it shall come upon you. By the swords of the mighty men, all of them, the ruthless ones of the nations, I shall make your host fall, and they shall ravage the arrogance the arrogance, doesn't it astound you? The arrogance of some of our leaders. The absolute arrogance of it. The arrogance of the worldly life. The arrogance of Egypt. And all its hosts shall be destroyed. Verse 13. And I shall destroy all its beasts from beside its great waters. And let the footmen 
trouble them no more, nor let the hooves of beasts trouble them. Nor let the hooves of beasts trouble them. Of course, that's very reminiscent, isn't it, of another prophet and his prophetic words. Of course, Jeremiah said, if you have run with the footmen and they have made you tired, if they have wearied you, then how do you contend with horses? You and I, we're running with the footmen right now. Any of the troubles that we have, politically, globally, spiritually, interpersonally, this is small stuff. It's just a small fire. It's just a small fire. We're running with the footmen. Don't let it phase you. Because you haven't even run with the horsemen yet. I've been training for the tribulation for most of my adult life. So therefore, I'm kind of greasy. I'm an oily duck. And you know, I just let it run off my back. Does it affect me? Yes, of course, I'm human. But only for a small time. You have to let it run off your back so you can continue in the prophetic streams of revelation because you have to understand these are small fires. I know it seems big. I know it seems huge. But that's because it's Satan trying to magnify the images in your mind and your mind and your ears are listening to the wrong voices. And therefore everything's getting bigger. Everything's getting more dramatic because you're not going to the stool, the small, still voice that brings you shalom. Where the peace is, that's where the prophecy is. Where the peace is, that's where the prophecy is. If you don't have peace, you won't hear the prophetic word and you will have a troubled soul. You see, this is all biblical understanding. We have got to get ready for the horses to contend with horses. And if in the land of peace you feel safe, then how do you manage in the jungle huh see this is all the word of Yahweh for us look at verse 14 then I shall make their waters clear and make their rivers run like oil declares the master Yahweh you see when we overcome the troubles of our present life then Yahweh brings forth revelation and the anointing in his word like never before but we all have to overcome. None of us are immune to it. I'm not immune to it. We all have to. And I can just give you a few tips, and I'm speaking to the choir. But I've used this word before. It's called a high-octane ping. You think about somebody, you think about a situation, and you get that, mm, that high-octane ping. That's the Holy Spirit telling you you've got troubles inside. That means you've got to go to the prayer room and you need to pray for that person. Even if they've done wrong to you. Pray for that person. Forgive that person. Do the work. Lift up that person, people, situation, whatever, until that high octane ping, it's no longer inside of you and then you walk in peace and then you're free of it. And then you can move into the next season that is assigned to you. 
But if you don't, you'll get stuck. And we live, and unfortunately in ministry, we see a lot of people that come in and come out that are stuck. And then they project the hurts of the past into their present company and then move out. And then it will continue and continue and continue. But we have to overcome the high octane pings. And that means that we've got to get over our pride. And I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. I've had to do this continually in my life. I learned this from a young age. Even before I was born again, I didn't have the, the Bible understanding of how to do it. But I knew that I had to do it because I always knew that there was a creator God. And I always knew that he had a son. I always believed that. I just chose to live in the world and live my own life. But I always knew that there was a divine being and that he had sent his son into the world to help humanity. I just was not ready to embrace him because I wanted to go and enjoy the world. But I always knew that from a young age. I mean, I grew up in England, as you know, with the Church of England school system. Of course, we did Bible study and singing and all of that. It was very much a part of my culture growing up. But, you know, it's not that way in England anymore. And that's a terrible, sad state of affairs. That's just another, another side note. Where on earth was I? I'm rambling. Sorry. Thank you. I was in verse 14. 12 sounds good. You like that? When I lay the land of Egypt waste and the land shall be stripped of all that once filled it. When I have stricken all who dwell in it, then, when, then, then they shall know that I am Yahweh. It's what we do. It's what we do when we're contending. It's how we choose to steward our time and our lives when we're contending for the faith. And that's what I'm talking about. Contending sometimes means you have to contend with contention. And it's while we're contending with contention and how we steward that, that's what it's all about. That's all the challenge. That's what makes us saints, is being a part of contending for the faith. It's all part of our growth and our experience. Now I beseech you, brethren, the Bible says, this isn't in our text, but I know it and you know it. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Well, again, the Bible says it is impossible that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. Meaning, stirring up the waters of contention like the pharaonic fish, all strife needs. Every time there's strife, it's always connected to a person who facilitates it. Strife cannot survive cannot survive 
unless a person excuse me, facilitates that strife, they have to nurture that strife and find a nice bed for that strife to bed down in and invite others to for comfort. This is not good. This is occult medicine. It's called witchcraft. And throughout the Bible, there were always facilitators of discord and strife. Because without strife, without a facilitator, strife cannot exist. It must be facilitated. It must be nurtured. A bed must be provided for it so that others can be invited to come and bed down. Jezebel, Ahab, we see this throughout the Bible, the facilitators of strife and contention. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, mark them, mark them, because again, it's all part of that pharaonic fish culture. Does that make sense? When I lay the land of Egypt waste and the land shall be stripped of all that which once filled it. When I have stricken all who dwell in it, then they shall know that I am your, your Yahuwah. This is all again talking about stirring up the waters of contention and strife. But now I want to shift back to our present world because you'll notice in the news currently now how there has been a shift in Egypt proper, in Egypt's military and tactical maneuvers. I don't know if you've noticed that in your news, but they are no longer actually agitating outside of their borders. Egypt was agitating outside of their borders. Now they're no longer agitating outside of their borders. Actually, you're seeing a parallel from our text prophetically move forward. Their contentions have become civil. Their contentions have become civil, contained within their borders. There's more civil war going on in Egypt and factions within Egypt. It's no longer spreading outside of the borders. This all comes before their downfall. It came historically and it will again in our prophetic future. Egypt's once vibrant waterways will become quiet and unused. And again, going back between the two, globally, politically, nationally, and again now interpersonally, this talks about us. It talks about us. Don't choose the wrong path. Don't choose the wrong path. You'll find your voice will become silent. No more effective for prophetic change. Disenfranchised from the whole, just like Pharaoh. Pharaoh became disenfranchised from the whole, and his voice was no longer good for any change. Egypt will become so weak by Nebuchadnezzar's victory, that she would never again venture outside of her borders. Now the similitude is when you and I become weakened to Babylon's victories over us, that we become shy to venture outside of our own boundaries into the realm of Yahuwah, where the good stuff lies, where the miracles happen. If you let the world Babylon beat you down and Babylon get victories over you, then you'll begin to clam up. 
you'll begin to stay within yourself. But when you can get outside of your head, get outside of yourself, and walk in the prophetic realm of Yahuwah, and not care what the world thinks, that's when the miracles happen. That's when the miracles happen. Again, getting outside of yourself. Verse 16. Yahuwah, this is the lamentation and they shall lament her. The daughters of the nations lament her. Over Egypt and over all her crowd they shall lament her, declares the master Yahuwah. Now, ministerially again, sometimes you and I have to wait for the waters of contention to be quiet and step back. And allow the mud to settle to the bottom before we begin our next venture. Before we can begin to lead even more people into the prophetic streams of water. This is where we're at, at Torah to the tribes right now, as we prepare for Sukkot, a city on a hill. There are so many new people that are coming, that are excited, that are inspired about this ministry and what's happening, that this could only happen by us stepping back and allowing the waters to settle for then the prophetic revelation to go forth, for the new people to come in and to be able to drink from that water. Because you can't drink from muddy water. That's no good for anybody. That's why we've titled this Sukkot, A City on a Hill. Because it is amazing. Amazing. When you turn to the Bible for comfort and solace, Yahweh always sees you through. Because he is faithful to all of us when we seek him in the early hours of the day. Verse 16. Verse 16, it finishes with the laments of Egypt. There's three laments, three laments referring to the three defeats of Egypt. Number one, historically, when the Egyptian women lamented, when the Babylon, Babylonians triumphed over Egypt in a battle that took place outside of Egypt. And number two, the second lament was when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Egypt and defeated not only Egypt, but Nebuchadnezzar defeated the foreign allies of the Egyptians as well. That was the second lament. The third lament, historically, was Nebuchadnezzar's last invasion of Egypt when the massacres, they were so great that no one was left in Egypt to bewail the bloodshed. Can you imagine that? Decimation. Now, earlier there had been such public grief, the text tells us, as dark clouds that concealed the very heavens. There was such public grief. It was as if dark clouds had concealed the very heavens. I want to finish up today, because it's only 16 verses. It's amazing that I've made it go this long. How long have I been going? 
16 verses. See what I can do with 16 verses? No wonder it's taken me months to get through the 13 scrolls of Ezekiel. Can you believe it? But I love being in the word of Yahuwah and talking about Yahuwah, talking to people and commentating on the Bible. It's just a passion of mine, so excuse me. But we're going to finish up this text, 16 verses, the ninth scroll of Ezekiel, with the, the three laments over the three final wars in the 20th and 21st century. Because that's how the prophet finishes up. Over the three laments of the world. And we have to be aware over the three laments of this world that we live in. The first lament was World War I, of course, when the Illuminati Bolsheviks overthrew the Tsars and made Russia a Jewish-controlled atheistic community. That was 101 years ago. That was the first lament. Our world changed when this happened. Because that first lament led to the second lament. And the second lament, of course, we know happened, of course, when World War II is fermented by taking advantage of the divisions between the fascists and the Bolsheviks. You see, the Bolsheviks morphs into political Zionism. You don't hear about Bolshevism anymore, but you hear about Zionism and the state of Israel all the time. Well, Bolshevism morphed into Zionism, which morphed into the state of Israel. It's Bolshevism rebranded. Because once somebody starts to smell a rat, then you've got to rebrand it and rebrand it, right? So right here we see then the fermentation of the second lament was when World War II is a fermentation of this division between the fascists and the Bolshevists. Bolshevism then morphs, of course, into political Zionism, and it kills fascism, which is Nazis, of course, and is now strong enough to set up its sovereign state that then begins to agitate the nations for the next 80 years. This is what we've seen, which leads us into our day, which is, of course, the third lament. World War Three, we don't know, but it's a judgment that's coming, which is interesting that this teaching happens to fall around Yom Kippur, because now we are seeing ferment fermented this third, third lament. And how is it happening? By taking advantages of the differences caused by the agitators the Illuminati, Zionists, the Bolsheviks rebranded, and the Arabian states. This is what we're seeing. Mutual destruction is the key. And we know the Bible tells us that two-thirds of the Zionist Illuminati in Israel will die, and the remnant will look upon him whom they pierced. That's according to the prophecies of Zechariah 12 and 13. The other nations though, all whilst this is happening, 
are becoming overrun with migrants becoming politically and economically exhausted. These nations are exhausted. Look at Europe. I mean, they are politically and economically exhausted. All the while, the Illuminati-backed and funded West sides with the Bolsheviks, the Israelis, as Russia, unshackled from the Bolshevik tyranny after 70 years with the fall of Bolshevism in 1989, Russia will never ever become enslaved again, it sides, Russia is siding with the remaining IMF free nations. And that's what we're witnessing right now. Look at the correlation, this is how we'll finish, but look at the correlation between the countries the West is at war with and the countries that are free from the grip of the Rothschilds. Because I've said this many a time, we live in a post-allied world. And the victors get to write history. But that doesn't mean that it's historical truth. It's historical fiction written by the victors. Historical fiction written by the victors. You don't have free speech in Europe's Germany today. So the truth can't get out because free speech is silenced in a post-allied Germany. So whatever you and I are hearing is historical fiction and we have to read history to find historical truth. And that takes time and that takes balance and staying within your measure. But, you know, many will say, oh, you're just being sensational. If you don't believe me, just look at the correlation. Look at the date of the inception. When did the International Monetary Fund begin? Does anybody know? Well, when did World War end, World War II end? 45. 45. And the IMF, the inception of the IMF, December the 21st, 1945. Coincidence? No, because there's a correlation between the inception of the IMF and all of the preceding wars that the West has had with so-called antagonistic nations. Let's look at this correlation. Well, first of all, we have to revisit the year 2000. It's not that long ago. There were seven countries in 2000 without a Rothschild's owned or controlled central bank. That's it. Only seven countries. Afghanistan, Iraq, Sudan, Libya, Cuba, North Korea, and Iran. The West deemed all those nations as what? Antagonistic nations. Now, that's how the West classified them. Antagonistic nations that they're either at war with or on the brink of war or occupation of. 
Now, fast forward to 2003, the only countries left without a central bank owned or controlled by the Rothschild family were five. Sudan, Libya, Cuba, North Korea, and Iran. So two are down, five left to go. Of course, Afghanistan and Iraq have been invaded and taken care of, right? You see what's happening here? IMF-free countries that are free from the Bolsheviks, free from the Illuminati globalists and the big bankers, meaning the IMF and the Rothschilds, then are deemed as antagonistic nations that must be defeated. That's the world we live in. That's the pharaonic fish world that you and I live in. It's an occult, luciferic world that is literally trying to crush the freedom of men. All through debt and slavery and human trafficking. Any country that tries to get out of the grips of the globalists and the Rothschild banking system or the IMF are deemed agitators and then the West goes to war against them or occupies and invades them. So then we, f we find and we go forward now to 2011. Now, in 2011, the only countries left without a central bank owned and controlled by the Rothschild family are three, Cuba, North Korea, and Iran. All three are now in the globalist sites from 2011 on. One would be taken over economically, Cuba. One recently moved from being taken over tactically to being taken over politically, North Korea. And the final one, we're going to have to go to war with, of course, Iran. Meanwhile, at home here in the United States, we're on the cusp of this third lament. In our text, there was public grief as the dark clouds concealed the very heavens but what we're going to be dealing with is public grief as the dark clouds of corruption are lifted that have concealed the crimes of these very elite there will be public grief when the dark clouds that have concealed the crimes of these elite are lifted. And if Judge Kavanaugh gets in, believe you me, those dark clouds will be lifted. Not only that, but you've got to look into the atmosphere and acknowledge that we live in a tech weaponized atmosphere. When are we going to deal with that? There is more man-made, not-so-wildfires and more man-made, not-so-natural disasters hitting our coasts than ever before. Of course, they call them wildfires. They're not that wild. They were man-made. And, oh, another natural disaster. Then they're not so natural. That's the problem. It's a tech 
weaponized atmosphere. When, when were we going to address that? Well, during this third lament, once those clouds are lifted, all of this will come out. All of this will be unveiled and the pharaonic fish cult judged, which includes, includes part of that pharaonic fish cult includes the Pope and the Jesuits. Of course, the Pope wears the hat of Dagon, another fish cult that was around in the Phoenician times. And of course, we know that there is much that needs to be judged in that house of Lucifer. Much that needs to be judged in that house of Lucifer. It's the end time. It's the end time. Lamentation for Pharaoh in Egypt that you and I get to sit back as saints and witness. And we get to be able to declare the great name of our king, Yahweh, in the nations as depravity becomes unveiled and people lose hope, become despondent and suicidal, left, right and center. Yet you and I will endure with a hope that is astounding and remarkable to those whose faith has become small. What was once great has now become decimated. But it is the end time saints that will stand up in a world of corruption and seek righteousness. That's the call. It's the third lament that you and I get to live through. This is the time. And this is a prophetic message that coincides with the feasts of Yahuwah. Because before we can come together at the Feast of Tabernacles, at the city on a hill, there will be judgment on Yom Kippur. I'm lamenting now over my actions, my behaviors. This is my time of lament. And there's much work that I confess that I must do. But I don't stand alone. We all have work we must do before we can face the Father in prayer on Yom Kippur. I am looking to be watchful. You should be looking to be watchful. But most of all, we must be watchmen over our own soul, over our own behaviors. I can't control what you do, but I can control what I do. Instead of reacting, I want to be proactive, prophetic, and a visionary to aid in this last days of the gathering of the saints in the nations. And you know what? With your help, we're able to do it. We are able to do it. A city on a hill, a light to the nations, and a beacon of hope. And I give Yahweh all the glory for the support, for the kindness, for the prayers, for the financial support that we've received from people locally, online. It has been overwhelming. When we have needed it, 
And when we haven't, Yahweh is always faithful. We're able to accomplish great things through people going to great lengths of stewardship, servitude, and of course, prophetic vision. Don't ever lose hope. Because for me, it is the times of contention that then bring inward reflection that allow us to grow and then go to the next season to be able to minister to a whole new group of saints excited and inspired about the journey of revelation that then they go and minister to a whole new group so stay tuned next week we'll have guests that we will be able to talk with about the upcoming feasts and festivals the calendar the sabbath and all those exciting things so yahweh we are blessed father that your word is alive and it is sharper than a two-edged sword. We give all reverence and honor to Yahuwah. Yahuwah, Yahuwah Elohim. Merciful, gracious, and long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, who extends mercy to thousands. He is the forgiver of iniquity, transgression, and sin. But he will by no means clear the guilty. But he will visit the sins of the fathers upon the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. But our prayer is, Yahweh, that we find mercy in your sight and that you go to battle for us. In Yahushua's mighty name. Amen. Amen.